Hi everyone, my name is Billy and welcome to Casting the Net. This is a new youth-led series hosted by Teens for Teens, exploring the breadth and depth of our online worlds. In each episode, we'll be casting the net wide in order to learn about the opportunities, but also challenges that the internet brings and hear from many experts all around the globe. As teenagers, we get most of our information online and with so much information out there, it can be easy to come across something that isn't true. On social media, messaging apps, misinformation, conspiracy theories, and rumors can spread really, really quickly. In this episode, we are going to explore the topic of misinformation and disinformation. Who creates it and why? What challenges there are and how we can spot it? And also how, as young people, we can make a difference. I'm joined here today by Susan Daly, Managing Editor of the Journal Media. Journal Media is an independently owned and managed media organisation, which includes the Journal, the Journal Fact Check, the 42 and the Noteworthy. How are you keeping? I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Um, I'm still somewhat working from home, working from the office. I think, um, you know, we're going to be talking about misinformation. I think that we are all still living in a, an era of waking up to how very much our worlds have changed and possibly won't go back to the way they were. Um, hybrid working is one of them. And of course, misinformation is, is another. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it is a different world out there online. <laughs> so Susan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Right, well, uh, thanks for the introduction there, um, which is quite right. I'm the managing editor of Journal Media. Um, I started off in the journal, um, I suppose, very late 2010. Somebody got appendicitis and I got a call. Could I come in and give a hand? And I never left. That's how I went into that role. Um, but I had previously worked for quite a long time in newspapers in particular um, and had worked as a news reporter, a news features writers, racing editor. I kind of worked along the gamut of things and um, had been a, a news editor as well. So by the time I came to the journal, it was really interesting because I think it was the start of, I suppose, Ireland looking at news coming at them on a number of different platforms. Of course, we still had the the legacy media, the, the broadcast arms, the newspapers that I come from and so on. But digital was starting to grow then. And I guess that was like 2010, 2011. And when I went into the journal, how online looked then, in fact, how we managed to, I suppose, get a foothold quite quickly was that we were really focused on the fact that we were online only. So we started, I suppose, setting up the site in a way that um, appealed to people who are online. It served their news in a way that was useful to them. It gave them an opportunity to interact um, through polls or to leave comments, which, of course, is a challenging space. And, and nobody, including ourselves, have figured that out. Um, but also we kind of designed it so that it would be accessible to people on their mobile phones. So that's a big difference, I think, between then and now is that smartphones are really only starting to take hold in Ireland at that stage to the point that when we started the journal, we didn't have an app that only came about six months later. We were like, God, we better get with it and get an app here going. And, and, and even we were kind of ahead in the curve there. And another difference was that social media. Um, when I think about news media and journalists, they weren't massively on it, you know, or certainly weren't breaking news on it, they weren't responding. There was almost a sense of, oh, no, we'll keep that for the 
the news places, the news sites, the news stations and so on. And I think if we were to look at the difference between then and now, obviously, um, it's an entirely different landscape. A lot of people are actually getting their news from social media and it has been the case for quite a while. There's a big fragmentation of the online space where even, I suppose, brands like ourselves that would have been kind of seen as quite new and innovative and we're still only, you know, just over a decade old, are now almost sort of... Um, I suppose, mainstream and are we kind of old school at this stage? You know, people are, are looking all over the place for different sources. But as a result, there is a lot of noise. There is a lot of confusion uh, depending on where you get information from. If it comes to you on a messaging app, uh, encrypted messaging apps and end to end like something like WhatsApp were not a thing when we started online, you know, 11 years ago. So all of these things, I think, have created a very noisy space online. And this is where misinformation has grown. It's come on so much in such a short space of time. How about what kind of types of misinformation is there? Like, do do the, does misinformation vary? Yeah, it absolutely does. And Billy, you'd often hear people, I think, um, interchange terms like misinformation and disinformation and fake news, although we tend to kind of steer clear of fake news as, as, a, as a term because it can cover a lot of things and maybe not all equally. So um, really, I think in terms of misinformation, disinformation and disinformation is a really specific, I, I guess, type of false information that is spread deliberately by malicious actors with an end that they definitely want, um, you know, to persuade people of something that isn't true for their own political end. It can also be a money making thing where people want to, I suppose, get people in clicking on particular headlines and so on um, because they can get ad revenue from it. So there's a few different impetuses from, the, from it there. Misinformation in some ways is almost more difficult to spot or more difficult to come to terms with and is more sprawling because it's sometimes unintended. It's people spreading rumors um, that they might actually believe are true because in some ways it might align itself with a bias they have personally. Um, you know, the, they call a thing called confirmation bias where you believe you know, that all politicians are corrupt and therefore I guess that you're more likely to share with a friend something that proves your point that's not to say there haven't been corrupt politicians but that kind of generalization or the climate change you know is is exaggerated and it's not man-made and it's not as catastrophic as we actually know it is according to the scientists and um, you will also then gravitate towards sharing things that might lean towards that area and it's not that you don't think they're true you actually believe that you're sharing something that that is true and then the forms it takes is another area where it gets quite confusing because um, there's the basic thing where you read what is purporting to be a news story and you go, this doesn't feel right. And that's the kind of, I suppose, fake news element we're thinking of most people. But of course, it's very sophisticated now. So you see videos being distorted um, you see audio and images being faked or being assigned um, some uh, some caption that isn't actually them. So it's, you know, saying that something happened yesterday, but in fact, it's, it's an image from five years previously in a different country. It's not showing the same thing at all. Stuff missing context, uh, false context. Uh, there's quite a number of areas in which misinformation can pop up. And I think that's where it becomes, I suppose, a little more difficult to give anybody a set of guidelines for spotting everything. Um, you just, I think, you have to approach online with an overall, I suppose, I wouldn't say cynicism, but I think scepticism to to literally not believe everything that you read, see, hear, feel, <laughs> all of the emotions. 
then as a young person, what types of misinformation are we most likely to encounter? I think we're all fairly susceptible to misinformation online, no matter what your age. Uh, but there is an element, I think, Billy, where young people are digital natives in a way that, say, I'm not because I grew up and there wasn't an Internet or if there was, I certainly didn't have access to it. Um, you know, it, it would have been maybe US military network or whatever. There were very just about emails by the time I was leaving college. So one of the things that goes along with that, if you're a young person who is a digital native and is very comfortable in that space, can actually be a false sense of reassurance that you're actually really on top of what you're seeing and that you're much more with it than someone like me who who's kind of only had to get to grips with it in the last 15 years or so. So that's one thing to recognize. The other thing is that, uh, you know, young people and all of us, um, friends are very, very important, but they're particularly important when you're in your teenage years Um, you're cementing things. It's a developmental thing. You draw very close to your peers. And as a result, you are likely to share information within that group and feel very trusting in what your friends are sharing. And because messaging apps and, and so on are actually really popular and important, and that's according to the usage data that we have um, and the rise of TikTok and you know messaging that can disappear very quickly so you can see something but maybe not get a chance to check it out and click on it, all leaves young people, I guess, in a position where they have to um, separate the emotion or the trust that's built with your friend who you, you might see every day but something that they share because it's not necessarily that they have checked it out for you so that's one good thing I think to really realize apart from that there's uh, I suppose the rise of social media for all of us is really important to note because we we talk about social media as being something that is source agnostic, which means that you can't really readily identify the source um, very much so on messaging apps, as I was saying. So this is something to recognize in where we get our information. If it's if it's coming on social media, it's, you know, it's pretty much always secondhand already. So it's always trying to figure out if it's on social media, who shared it to social media, what's the link they're sharing, try and go to that link and so on. Um, so I would say that that's the ways in which we can be vulnerable and particularly younger people. Is there like particular platforms that you're more, more likely to encounter misinformation, maybe as a young person, but also as an older generation? Is there like specific areas and do they differ between us? I think that the messaging apps that I was talking about, so everything from WhatsApp to wherever you're getting your DMs are a place where it is a lot harder to stem the tide of misinformation or to even see other people responding to it saying, I don't think that's true or that picture is actually from five years ago in Georgia and, you know, there wasn't such a protest yesterday on Grafton Street, for example. And that's where, you know, messaging apps, I think, are a particular place of misfortune for us and, and they are something that are used a lot by younger people. Saying that, when the journal was looking at a lot of debunks particularly in the first phase of COVID-19 in Ireland, we did find that WhatsApp had become a bit of a hotbed for the older generation. And interestingly, the things that were really alarming people and that were completely fake and were spread for we don't know why, I mean, it didn't appear to be a money-making thing. It seemed to be out of pure maliciousness, things like saying the army was going to be on the street and locking down the streets the following day. And it was an audio message from a captain in the army or something like that. They were spreading particularly among the older generation, you know, I know certainly there would have been 
people in my network, um, you know, older relatives who would have sent these to me in alarm and said, oh, my God, you work in the news. Is this true? And, you know, that whole hotels have been sealed off with people in them because they were all infected. It was all very Hollywood movie-esque. And that would kind of show again that it's it's sort of not being familiar with that platform. Um, I've been interested to see the rise of misinformation and also people trying to fight misinformation in places where you wouldn't have suspected it before. So most people expect at this stage to see nonsense on Facebook, to see mad things pop up on Twitter. Um, I suppose public places where you can actually, you know, see them quite easily, where you wouldn't necessarily have expected to think about misinformation as much maybe three years ago would have been somewhere like Instagram, which seemed to be at the time a bit more of a safe haven of sharing nice images, kind of lifestyle app. The same thing with TikTok and so on. And now we know that there have been lots of occasions of users and accounts popping up content within those spaces because it's kind of sandwiched in between, you know, makeup artist tips, um, you know, that 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 you don't expect it and then you're kind of less ready for it. Do you know what I mean? You don't have your your misinformation awareness armor on you. And and then on the other side of it, I know there was a, a girl on TikTok and she was doing amazing videos. And I think they were like makeup videos, but in in the in the middle of them, she was like her her actual conversation was was taking down misinformation that was being spread on a number of different topics so I find it very interesting to see how those are being used and often in those cases people like fact checkers like ourselves it takes us a while to figure out that that's what's going on and if that's the case for us it's definitely going to be the case for the users as well. In this day and age now more than ever it is like it is imperative that we know who we can trust online and who we cannot trust but how would you motivate people to be more media literate then? I I think uh, from my own point of view, I'm someone who likes to be right. I don't know if there's many people like that in Ireland. <laughs> I suspect there is. But basically, I, I think when I'm in conversation with friends and family and so on, and I'm trying to win an argument because I love good old argument, um, I don't want to be caught out at the end of it by someone being able to pull something out of the hat and go actually sure that's completely wrong is the actual fact on it you know um so I, there's that kind of ego thing you know for me for most people though i think being media literate is not necessarily about being getting one over on anybody else it is around moving through the world with the information that's correct so that you can actually make better decisions for yourself that might be around how to vote in a particular way. It might be around making a personal health decision about what you do and don't do. The vaccinations would have been a big part of that. Um, yes, there was a public health implication about getting or not getting a vaccine, wearing or not wearing a mask, but ultimately it also had a personal consequence. So I think there's people have a lot at stake um, about getting the right quality information. And I think that in that case, media literacy isn't something that's a, is sort of a broccoli thing where you should have it. It actually is really, really good for people's personal development and safety and so on. Um, media literacy is so much more apparent now. I think one of the things that would be great is if it was actually really strongly in curriculums and schools and the earlier the better. They say that um, you know the plasticity of the brain, that forming logic arguments and all that kind of stuff is much more towards the preteen teen years. But I think there's also a possibility in in early years of speaking to younger kids in a way that gets them to think about, I suppose, critical thinking, you know, and getting them to sort of 
um, establish for themselves if I'm told something? How does it make me feel? If it's making me feel like that, like make me feel an emotion, because a lot of misinformation is there to make you feel an emotion, to make you feel scared, to make you feel angry, um, or to make you click on something. If it's just, as I said, a commercial ploy for people to make money from your 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 Google ads or whatever. Um, so if it's making you feel any way funny, then that should make you stop. And I think be, be Media Smart, which is an initiative there from Media Literacy Ireland. Um, and I'll have to say I'm, I'm on the steering group, Media Literacy Ireland, along with a lot of uh, great institutions. So um, I am speaking from a place where, you know, we've been dealing with this a good bit. The be Media Smart is a really good site to have a look at. Um, they would have had a campaign. I think a lot of people would have heard because it would have been across television, radio, social and so on um, called Stop Think Check. And the stop was to kind of stop and look at um, what it is that you're reading. Or if you just read the headline, are you going in to read the rest of the text and the copy? Because sometimes the headline can be very far away from what's in the copy. Um, think about it. Think about how it is making you feel. Um, and then you go and you check the nitty gritty of it. So things I would look for is sometimes if you can get to the source of it, if you see something on social media and you go, well, I'm going to click through and actually read the whole thing. And you look at the website, sometimes the website can look really authoritative, but then you realize it's actually, you know, a fake or it's like, you know, bbc.co.uk.tes or something weird like that. Um, you should uh, look at the author and see have they written stuff elsewhere. Look at the actual issue and the topic and Google it and see what are other sources saying about it? And you might find that there's loads and loads of other sources saying the exact same thing, but are all of those sources sites you've never heard of or are some of them new sites that you might trust? You know, something like RTE. I mean, it's not to say that we need to trust RTE or the journal or any other mainstream media, but you can kind of assess, okay, this is only being said by a particular, I suppose, type of site or who also tend to say, you know, COVID's not real or something like that. Um, so I think those are all of the ways in which I would be looking at um, at misinformation or trying to assess whether something is misinformation or not. And that's just as a citizen. But if we can think of those things, they're very basic little checks to do for yourself. That is a really good way for people to, um, I suppose, gain some literacy and critical thinking around what they're seeing. Susan, in Ireland, like how would our problem with misinformation compared to other parts of the world and other countries like are, do we have a bigger problem or would we be have like a smaller problem well billy it's so interesting i've had a lot of conversations about this in the last two years in particular and i was lucky enough to to finally um get out of the country there earlier this year and i went to italy to meet um a lot of my colleagues in the um the european fact checking network and we were having conversations about what we'd seen. We also share with each other the kind of leading trends every month. And what we have always found is that Ireland is a bit of an outlier with misinformation. The other types of things that are spreading across Europe, you'll see a shadow of them sometimes uh, in Ireland. And obviously, when there's something global like, you know, COVID or the Ukraine war, those things will will pop up in Ireland, of course, as well. But you'll find that our misinformation tends to be very localized to what particular Irish interests are. I don't know if that's a geographical thing. Um, and certainly we did, you know, inherit and bring over misinformation that was coming from 
the US, which really had nothing to do with us stuff around, you know, the US presidential election and so on. But I think that's to do with Irish people's interest in American affairs and somehow feeling related to them. Um, I suppose, you know, there's a lot of Irish American um, uh, interest and in, uh, we can factor that in. So interestingly, Ireland does tend to throw up things that you don't see across the rest of Europe. And likewise, things that are going wild in Europe don't necessarily always come to our door. Where we do find there would have been outside influences was in some referendums where you see all of a sudden there was a lot of misinformation coming in from pages and accounts that had never been there before. And you could see that they were potentially linked to uh, similarly minded accounts in the US, for example, or in the UK in particular, when it comes to migration these days as well, we see some kind of common things there. Um, one thing that I have learned from our international colleagues in fact checking is that because we're an English speaking country, we're in some ways more slightly more protected because there is more fact checking at work um, in English speaking countries, but also because a lot of the tech platforms are being held to account um, in places where English is the working language. So across Europe and the EU and the European Parliament, who are obviously looking very closely at this um, and also in America. So uh, when it comes to also moderating in a sort of Facebook would say that they have a lot of moderators in the background where you can flag content. And I don't mean with fact checkers um, on a very kind of basic, um, uh, 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 you know, sort of day to day thing where you're flagging information. What I've been told, I was talking to Eastern European colleagues around what's popping up there for them around Ukraine. And obviously huge misinformation there at play because of the the diversity of populations in, within their own countries, which often themselves are post-USSR uh, uh, Soviet countries after the breakup of communism over there. And they were saying, you should see our Facebook pages because there is nobody moderating in our language. And so these things just go into a complete echo chamber and they never get taken down. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And given how many people in the world do not speak English, I think it's extremely worrying. Yeah, it most definitely is. It really is an interesting topic. And like, I wish I wish we had so much more time to hear about it. I'm going to ask you one last question before I let you go. Like you've said a lot today and it was all brilliant and amazing. But what are your top tips for young people and for older generations when spotting misinformation online? Well, I'm not going to say this is the definitive list or anything. And it is a little bit of, um, I suppose, repeating what I might have said with the Stop Think Check campaign, which, as I said, bbdsmart.ie is a great source to go and have a look there. Um, but I think key things there would be to check other sources for this report or claim that you're seeing do not just sit on the headline and think that's it and definitely don't share it if you've never heard this before because it's sort of on you if you feel like the world it can be a scary pace and you want people to be kinder make better decisions then you can think about this as something that you can do that's quite powerful i think that we often decide that you know, our online activities don't really matter. And, you know, people talk about clicktivism versus real life activism and so on. Whereas, in fact, our behavior is so much online these days that what we do there really, really matters, even if you're just an individual. So go and have a look at the source, um, especially if it's not a dot com. Uh, you'll often see that and you can see that coming in, not even as online things, but on scams, for example, in text messages to older people who would be more likely to interact with a text message, whereas the rest of us just tend to ignore them now. I, I have an actual like mortal fear of text messages. Um, 
they you know they have something that looks like your bank website but actually if you look closely the dots in the wrong place and it's actually not belong to them at all that domain you know don't click on it um the other thing is it could be an imposter um i've often seen you know news going around that's popped up on algorithms where i've gone oh my god the bbc are not reporting that or there's no way Sky News are saying that. And no, neither the BBC or Sky News are saying this. It's actually somebody has gone to the bother of faking up. And it's quite easy to do now, fake up a website to make it look like that. In fact, and I I, I know that um, possibly you were wondering what kind of mad things the journal has seen. One of the more outlandish things we have seen is we've had to actually do fact checks where we've had to say, no, the journal did not publish an article saying monkeypox lives on your toilet for 150 years. And that, you know, those kind of things have been quite recent um, where we have found because we are, you know, a, a recognized, you know, fact checking entity and we have the verification from the international standards um, organization and so on that in a, in an absolutely twist of events, um, that has been used and turned around and they've used our branding and disseminated something online to make it look like the journal fact check says this is true and they're actually disseminating conspiracy theory or complete falsehood that's absolutely fascinating so when those come into us we will often debunk those as quickly as we can and put it out there and go this is not us in fact I myself had to give a quote to one of the reporters recently um, because I'm the head of editorial to, to go I can categorically verify that we did not put this report out on the 18th of August or whatever it was. Um, the other thing then is who's writing it? I mean, is there an author at all? And if there is, an interesting thing to look at is, I don't know if a lot of people here use reverse image search, but it's very, very easy and accessible to on Google. And you put in the image and you'll see this image turn up and it turns out to be somebody who was modeling knitwear for a catalog. You know, um, I find that really fascinating. And you should do that with other images as well that are really striking and are making you shocked that, oh, my God, you know, this explosion has gone off here or these protests actually had about two million people at it. Put that image in if you've never seen it before and you it's make you feel alarmed put it into the reverse image search and see where else it pops up. And if, if it is fake, it will pop up as having been on a news report six years ago. So the image itself is probably fine, but it's actually not of what they're saying it is. I think that's really interesting. Um, you should look for any small, slightly hidden things that say that the, the content is sponsored, because if you're doing this for a company and they're really trying to get you to push the idea that this product works and cures all of your ails, um, then it will kind of become apparent as you go along if you start to think that way. Uh, you can also check fact check sites to see if particular conspiracy theories have been fact checked there before. I mean, the journal is there and we have um, fact check Northern Ireland as well are great, but there's any number of international ones that will cover a lot of stuff that you'll see pop up about international subjects. So vaccines, um, health, um, you know, religion, um, education, climate, migration, all of those uh, hot button topics. And then uh, one last little thing is check the date on it as well. <laughs> so sometimes people will send something around and go, I can't believe there's, you know, they're doing this. And you realize it's actually the article is two years old. So it's just trying to make you feel like there's still a panic about something when in fact there isn't. Um, and those are the main things. And I would say the other thing is that within your own network, if you feel like somebody is starting to fall down the rabbit hole um, is have a conversation with them if you think it's appropriate. I think nobody knows your friends, your family as well as you do. 
And if it's early on in them pursuing this idea that something is off or the government is trying to do this or there's some sort of out of international body trying to influence everything, they could be at the very start of that journey of, of, of misinformation and they may be just curious about it. So that's a really good time to chat to them about, OK, I'm interested that you're saying this. Where, where, where did you see this? And if they say on Facebook or on WhatsApp, well, you know, go with them. OK, but from whom on WhatsApp and what was the source on Facebook so that you're almost getting them to drill down into the information. And even if they're not going to be fully convinced that, oh, actually I got this all wrong, what you're doing is actually just asking them to think and almost to explain it to you. And in the explaining, that's where holes start to appear for people. And while they might not say that to you, it might be enough to get them thinking. At least that's the thought. The main thing I think is you can't lecture people. Um, you can only tell them what you believe. You can try and find, I suppose, some source that you both agree is half decent. They may not like all the things that you read and vice versa. And then you go to that source and see what they're saying about the topic. Um, so I think conversations about misinformation and not just um. I suppose, and, and thinking of your own bias as well. Sometimes we read something and it kind of goes, as I said, with the confirmation bias of, I knew there was X, Y, and Z. Um, so you need to stand back and think, well, actually I'm very pro this or I'm very anti this. So is this, am I bringing that into my reac reaction to this piece of information? So check your own biases before you go checking anybody else's. That would be a key piece of advice for me. That's brilliant, Susan. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to say thank you for joining us today as well. It was a very insightful chat and you brought some very interesting pieces of information. So thank you so much. Thank you, Billy. I really enjoyed it. And um, come to the Journal Fact Check. Send us uh, an email, factcheck at thejournal.ie if there's something you want us to check out. And we're on Twitter, Facebook and on Instagram. Brilliant. Thank you.